Welcome and thank you for joining us for this podcast brought to you by the American Heart Association. This podcast is part of a series focused on sharing information with healthcare providers who are caring for patients during the COVID-19 pandemic. Hello, welcome to our podcast today. This is Jeannie Poole, Section Head of Electrophysiology at the University of Washington. This is your power bite of what you will learn today. We have covered three topics that are very important. The first of which is, you know, what is the real risk of cardiovascular disease in COVID-19 with a special look at arrhythmia risk? It appears to be overall low, but it's not zero, and we yet need to better understand why these arrhythmias occur, whether or not they're directly related to the effects of the virus combination with the fact many of these patients have cardiovascular disease. And then how can we safely use medications once they are proven and shown in randomized trials to be beneficial to patients? How can we provide those medications safely to patients who may be at a risk for QT prolongation or other cardiovascular toxicity? Welcome to this podcast today discussing the risk of arrhythmias in COVID-19. And I'm joined today by Mina Chung from the Cleveland Clinic, who is Professor of Medicine in the Division of Cardiology in the Section of Pacing and Electrophysiology and Dr. DJ Lacaretti, who is Medical Director for the Kansas City Heart Rhythm Institute. So we wanted to talk a little bit amongst ourselves and uh, think a, a bit about the problem of arrhythmias in the COVID-19 disease process. Certainly, we were perhaps surprised that this has risen to such a visible concern. Uh, early in the reports coming out of China, however, the Chinese were already stating that a significant proportion of patients, up to 16 plus percent of patients, were manifesting arrhythmias. And so to understand better why this was, uh, further uh, reviews of those patients revealed that commonly troponin was increased or in rare cases, patients were having myocarditis. But it raised the concern that we might be actually dealing with significant cardiovascular events. So when you think about you know, why that might be, specifically in terms of arrhythmias, um, I think about the fact that it could be due to the virus itself. Uh, we don't know that much yet, but we're learning more and more. Uh, there may be a direct effect of COVID-19 on um, being cardiotoxic or perhaps from its endothelial and cytokine storm effects. It also could well be due to the fact that a lot of these patients have high risk for cardiovascular disease and the presence of COVID-19 puts an extra cardiometabolic demand on these patients that then could worsen their underlying cardiac disease and therefore result in arrhythmias, both ventricular as well as atrial arrhythmias. And then I think the third uh, issue really has to do with the potential for iatrogenic arrhythmogenesis from the use of drugs that might be cardiotoxic or proarrhythmic. So I wanted to turn to my colleagues now and see what um, they might have to shed light on in terms of thinking about the potential arrhythmic risks of COVID-19. Amina, you've been looking at this um, a lot lately and reviewing some of the literature. What are your thoughts about why we might be seeing arrhythmias and what's been your experience? Well, I think, Jeannie, you've really summarized it well because there's an incidence of myocarditis, but also cytokine storm. And you know, there's a lot of uh, research done on the impact of various cytokines and reduction of uh, cardiac function and heart failure. So um, those kinds of um, 
uh, events with just uh, developing heart failure from the cytokine storm or direct um, viral invasion or myocarditis can certainly uh, lead to arrhythmias of all sorts, atrial arrhythmias, as you said, and ventricular arrhythmias. And actually that initial report from China said that of people requiring an ICU, 44% had some sort of an arrhythmia. Um, so, you know, I think it's multifactorial. And the other thing that had been concerning, especially early on, were these reports of people who had been um, semi-stable and then would suddenly decompensate. Um, so, you know, there's also the issue with that as of whether or not there's some neurotropism to um, this virus. There's, there are ACE2 uh, receptors in the brain. Um, ACE2 happens to be the receptor by which the spike protein on COVID-19 uh, enters host cells. And, um, you know, so people have speculated that perhaps some of the late um, manifestations might be, uh, might have something to do with um, invasion of the brain and decreased respiratory drive and apnea and respiratory arrest um, and secondary arrhythmias. Uh, I don't know if you've, uh, uh, DJ or Jeannie, if you've seen any of that. I, I know Jeannie, you're in a higher incidence area than we are in Ohio. Um, so that might. So, um... Mina, thank you. I think uh, all of the mechanisms that you have outlined probably make sense. Uh, I mean, some of our experience, uh, uh, we, we are putting out a large series of uh, ventricular arrhythmia experience during the COVID time period with multiple institutions from the United States and Italy participating. We found that there was a general increase in the incidence of arrhythmia. So we, we, we pulled all the patients who had COVID or, or, or suspected COVID PUI status that came into the hospital with either ICD shocks and uh, monomorphic non-sustained VTs and PVCs. When you really tease out the data, what is very interesting is the patients who have COVID positive status um, presenting with cardiac arrhythmias are the ones that do have a significantly higher level of troponins being positive suggestive of involvement of the myocardium uh, to a much greater degree, whether it is direct myocardial injury at the cell necrosis or if it is microscopic capillary thrombosis induced by the COVID infection, you do find a significant amount of troponin bump in these patients. And what's incredible about this is you're not going to see monomorphic VTs in these cases. What you're going to see is mostly PVCs, non-sustained VTs, torsards, uh, VFRS type of, of a thing. But interestingly, mortality in these patients is primarily due to electromechanical dissociation and primary pump failure rather than ventricular arrhythmias. And then we saw this other category of patients who, who all presented to the uh, uh, hospitals with ventricular tachycardia storms, VT storms. And most of these patients actually are known ICD patients who have a pre-existing cardiomyopathy and we were worried that all of these patients had um, uh, COVID-19. So we treated them as PUIs, we isolated them. And then the tests come back to be negative, but all these patients have uh, VT storms. I mean, you would be surprised that amongst all these hospitals, we had close to 40 plus VT ablations that were done during the COVID era, clearly suggesting that maybe the environmental stress or the physical stress of the COVID 
pandemic itself has resulted in, in, in VT exacerbations in these patients, which we ended up ablating and taking care of. So I think there is a clear-cut dichotomy in the way these ventricular arrhythmias present, depending on whether they're truly affected by COVID versus that they are uh, in a COVID environment, but they are really not infected by the COVID virus. So I think there is a, there is a difference in how we should differentiate these people. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting in Seattle, um, we've seen what you've described. However, the frequency is actually quite low, at least what we think right now. I think time will better show us as we start to collect more data, especially on patients who are being discharged from the hospital. But we've seen all of what you've mentioned. We've had patients with atrial arrhythmias, frequent PVCs, very rarely patients with ventricular tachyarrhythmias. Uh, we've seen patients who probably fit into that latter category that you were talking about, DJ, in the COVID environment, although in a few cases, patients have subsequently tested positive for COVID, but they clearly had an underlying primary cardiac event. And that makes you wonder about the interplay between COVID-19 and their underlying cardiovascular disease. When you look at some of the data that has come out of both New York as well as Italy and their sudden death rates that are remarkably higher in this you know, year, this COVID-19 um, experience a time frame compared to the year before, uh, it'll be really um, interesting and, and very important to understand a lot more about those patients and whether or not the cardiac arrests were um, due to something like what I just described, that interplay between COVID-19 and underlying cardiovascular disease. Is it because um, patients had delayed presentation to the hospitals because they were afraid to ask for medical help in the standard way. So there's a, a lot yet to be learned, but I, I would say that um, overall the arrhythmia risk in patients hospitalized with COVID-19 has been relatively low in the Seattle experience. I'm curious, have you seen Brady arrhythmias and AV block? I've heard that reported as well. We have had very little that's been um, documented. Um, what I would say is that we are mostly looking at those kinds of events in the University of Washington system of hospitals. And so that doesn't reflect necessarily the experience in some of the other Seattle and Seattle metropolitan area hospitals. Perhaps the, the global survey of uh, electrophysiologists across the world uh, on the uh, arrhythmia experience has been quite in line with what you uh, said, um, Ginny. So I think atrial fibrillation and atrial arrhythmias were relatively common. That's to be anticipated when people have severe lung disease, ARDS type of scenario. And then PVCs followed by non-sustained ventricular tachycardias, I think are also relatively common. And primary pump failure and EMD, interestingly, was a lot more, a lot higher than what you would anticipate in a typical viral syndrome. So I think that's something that's very unique about uh, Corona. Yeah, I think this issue of patients who recover from their respiratory illness and are discharged home and then have sudden cardiac death is very disturbing. And as you've mentioned, in cases where uh, monitoring or there's uh, first response rhythms that have been available, it may not be to a ventricular tachyarrhythmia. Well, Mina, what about uh, the potential for iatrogenic arrhythmias? Uh, the havoc that we might cause in trying to um, help patients. This has certainly been an uh, intense area of focus with quite a few reports coming out in the literature now about the use of hydroxychloroquine, chloroquine, and azithromycin. Yeah, certainly those three drugs can prolong the QT, especially when used in combination. Um, 
commonly hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. There are some other QT prolonging drugs that uh, are used as well, antivirals, uh, lopinavir, ritonavir, uh, tocilizumab, and uh, use it fingolimod. Um, but you know, mostly I think what people have been getting is hydroxychloroquine uh, plus minus azithromycin. Now, you know, whether or not those are effective or not, we're still um, waiting to, to see, may or may not be. Um, but we do have some experience where Larry Epstein and Musa Saleh uh, did publish their New York City experience in circulation uh, AE recently, and they had 200 patients and, um, and actually showed that, yes, uh, QTC can go up, uh, but they had no cases of torsade. Uh, you know, these are people who, um, you know, if you're in the hospital, you would uh, be watching either with telemetry or some other means, a QT, and so there's some opportunity there to, to hold uh, the medication, and in some cases, they even use lidocaine to shorten, uh, but um, clearly, if you had the combination use of hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine with azithromycin, they had more QTC prolongation. Uh, but, you know, I, I think in, in general, the use of hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine has been um, pretty widespread for malaria and uh, been used presumably safely. But I think in these sick people and in conjunction with azithromycin, we have to be a little careful. Uh, the, the criteria for what to do when they're on it, uh, such as with um, you know, how often do you check EKGs or monitoring? I mean, those are issues in this air, this time because you have you don't you want to minimize exposure of personnel and uh, you have issues with contamination of your equipment. Um, some people have been using uh, telemetry and adapting telemetry leads to be able to read QTCs and and change in QTCs, um, and in in some regions where. Um, where COVID-19 has been overwhelming and you run out of telemetry space, um, um, you know, some of the MCOT devices have been used as well. AJ, let me ask you about this specific um, issue of how do you monitor patients safely? I'm speaking about inpatients now who are being treated with these medications. That became quite a huge issue for us in our hospitals. Um, in terms of what EP could recommend and assist the teams taking care of these patients who were, um, of course, very concerned about anything that would add exposure between the staff and the patients. So maybe you can let us know what your approach to this has been. So I think avoiding uh, doing EKGs on patients, if we don't have to do one, um, I think is very reasonable. Um, what we have done within the HCA system and also at the Kansas City Heart Rhythm Institute is if patients' QT interval need to be monitored and, and if they are COVID positive and you really wanted to minimize exposure to these people, uh, then we have used the, the telemetry leads. And, and occasionally we have had scenarios uh, where the patients actually had the Cardiomobile uh, app already on their, uh, on their phones. So, the, so we actually were able to use the patient's phone to record those in, in a couple of cases. I mean, even though it was kind of a, an interesting way to do it. But I think the, the, the telemetry um, uh, data is good enough to, to give us, I mean, it's not, the, it's, it's not the perfect QTC interval that you could measure, 
but I think you could you could get by with it given the situation. I think to Mina's point, there has been a lot of hype about this rather than a true concern. Uh, I think that was primarily driven by some very early reports of, oh my God, that is going to be 30 plus percent of the people who are gonna have bad ventricular arrhythmias, but in the reality seem to be quite the contrary. So, I mean, having grown up in a tropical country like India, I mean, we used to give out chloroquine to people left and right, right? So, and I haven't seen anybody drop dead because of of, uh, uh, torsades or other arrhythmias. So that really makes you wonder if there are geographic and and sort of genetic differences in how people respond to chloroquine that I think has to be taken into consideration. And perhaps a lot of these patients that we're trying to put hydroxychloroquine on and, and chloroquine on are very sick. They have a very high comorbidity profile, poor renal function, hypoxia, electrolyte abnormalities. I think that picture is completely different than, than what we see in a, in a routine outpatient prescription of a normal younger people that we're prescribing hydroxychloroquine to connective tissue disorders or malarial prophylaxis or therapy, right? So uh, I think all those points need to be kind of um, taken note of. Yeah, I think you made some really important points. Um, I agree. I think that the fact that it's been used safely in otherwise healthy people maybe doesn't help us so much with COVID-19. This is a different situation. These are patients with high cardiovascular risk. Um, But the data nevertheless is interesting that torsad has not actually been seen. QT prolongation, yes, especially when you combined um, hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin. I think that was something that, you know, clearly um, came out of some of these recent articles, including the one from NYU, and that the QT um, can stay prolonged for a few days. That's not surprising because of the half-life. So, you know, Mina, what's your um, take from this in terms of, you know, what do you think is the best way to, you know, think about this risk? And what should we be considering if hydroxychloroquine, well, it is being used a lot in outpatients. We just don't have the same kind of data as we um, do from the inpatients. But but how do you think this should be approached? Um, Well, first of all, um, you know, there are still a lot of issues about whether or not hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin are effective. So if you're in a center like our center and the patients qualify for a uh, clinical trial, then actually the FDA has said that we shouldn't be giving them hydroxychloroquine, that they should be in the clinical trial if they qualify for it. So I think there's still um, equipoise at this point and we really need more data on, on whether or not to even use it. And if you have somebody who has a prolonged QTC over 500 or 550 milliseconds or whatever your cutoff is with a, you know prolonged QRS or, or pacing or that kind of thing, then you have to really think uh, long and hard about the um, risk-benefit ratio. If they're on a monitor, you know, it, it, it really is very regionally dependent in some cases, depending on, um, on what your resources are for monitoring. And... Um, you know, I think it, it's still, if you are going to use it and you can, you're uh, concerned about um, what the baseline QTC is, then, you know, by all means, get the EKG at baseline, get the, you know, you can consider getting an EKG uh, after a couple of doses or, or just using telemetry. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, one of the big unknowns is what about the outpatients? 
right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, should we be monitoring them in some form? And yeah. that is... No, I agree. It's critical because it, you know, it is being used out there. Um, we are at the University of Washington. Well, not me. The <laughs> infectious disease folks are leading the outpatient hydroxychloroquine and the combination of hydroxy plus um, azithromycin. It's a placebo-controlled trial that's sponsored by the Gates Foundation, and and those patients are all being monitored. So, you know, I think that, that I agree with you. I think that having the randomized clinical trials is what's most important. And I do think that there's also a take-home message in general from having gone through this experience, which is that, you know, patients receiving QT prolonging drugs need to be considered carefully. You need to look at the other medications that they're taking. And, you know, this hopefully will highlight that for people who maybe don't always think about the patient's antidepressant medication or antipsychotic medication or all these other medications um, that can prolong the QT interval, that really safety has to be the first um, concern for patients. Well, I'd like to um, change topics a little bit because as electrophysiologists, we've had a little bit of a surreal experience over the last several months in terms of how do we manage our patients? How do we take care of them? How do we get them into the electrophysiology laboratory? And I know that um, both of you are involved in the um, COVID-19 task force that is a consensus between um, the major scientific um, organizations. And so I'd like to hear what your thoughts are on how do we get back to normal? What are the uh, positions that we should implicate in terms of continuing to think about safety yet be able to provide our patients with their necessary services? DJ, do you want to lead off on that? Yeah, absolutely, uh, Ginny. So I think it's a, it's a very important question that I think everybody have started asking. I mean, we have we were quick to respond to this pandemic and uh, shut down anything that is non-essential so that we can protect our patients and protect our uh, healthcare personnel and conserve resources for what we have been going through. But then again, uh, to your point, the world just cannot shut out forever and we have to figure out a way of how to rise from the ashes, if you want, may want to call it. And how do we do that, right? So. I think the way I look at this is we got to really have a better sense of understanding of the severity of the disease burden in that geographic area, that any geographic area that one lives in. Then you, and, and you've got to really figure out, is this a, a higher prevalence and incidence area, or is it a medium prevalence and incidence, or a low prevalence and incidence? And that would give you a ground level of understanding of uh, how the disease process is going to really impact operationally in what you intend to do. Then the, the second part of this puzzle is, does your facility have adequate resources to really deal with, not only deal with the ongoing COVID crisis, but have the ability to really create a microcosm of relative COVID safe environment in terms of the lab space or the PPEs or other resources that this intense process is going to require. And then the third, and the most important of all of this is our capabilities for testing, right? That was the biggest bottleneck that we faced uh, in the United States compared to countries like South Korea or Taiwan or Singapore for the matter, who have been, uh, I mean, they're all relatively smaller countries, so they can do a lot of these things a lot faster than us. And they have been a shining example of how they have effectively leveraged aggressive testing uh, in order to resume life back to near normal. 
and and do we have those capabilities here i think we have done a reasonably good job in in ramping up our supply chain but i think a lot of times there is a significant amount of discrepancy in access to the testing uh in 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 different places so one one has to be able to test the patients what kind of testing are you able to offer to people can can you get a pcr test on everybody or what you have is only a serologic testing and so understanding the the limitations of both the pcr testing and the serologic testing interpreting it and how do you really apply it to both your healthcare teams and patients as you slowly bring them back into the fold i think is an important question that uh, uh, one has to keep on mind and then the fourth one is creating a, a a nice process with effective communication at all levels starting from the healthcare teams to the administrators to the community in general and then the patients and creating this care continuum that is effective i think is going to really play a role in that so if we take these basic principles and and apply them uh, to create your own reboot program at each institution and and applying the general guidelines from cdc regional statewide and your institutional policies along with it i think would be able to help anybody to to recreate a safe pathway so that's kind of what i think people should do mina do you have um any thoughts on this yeah you know i i think we first of all as we all uh, are facing opening up um we you know we're we're all we have to be agile and be able to model and follow incidents look at testing um in order to see whether or not this is causing a second wave and you know we that could be just as devastating to try to to then have to reclose down again um so i think it's important to to have the capacity to do the analytics to be able to figure out where you are in terms of your ppe your resources uh out because it's possible that we could be opening up and then it and then have to shut down again um we have to increase the confidence of our patients to come back and i have to say that that here in our hospital um you know we have hand sanitizer everywhere everybody is uh wearing a mask um you know we have cloth masks we've uh, instituted that um and so you know dj's point about uh, a relative covid safe area you know if we're bringing people in everybody coming in for procedures cardioversions or otherwise even a stress echo they're getting um they're being told they have to get tested ahead of time so we have the capacity we've been lucky to have the capacity to ramp up to be able to do that um so we've started that and we'll probably start you know routinely and and uh, sampling uh healthcare workers and and the population so there are a lot of pieces to this reboot and you know hopefully we can avoid second waves you know a lot of it uh we we are going to depend on our regional state uh, uh leadership uh as they hopefully ramp up slowly so we can watch to see what the effect is um but uh you know i think the other thing is perhaps hasn't been um talked about as much as contact tracing one of the things that uh you know other countries have done better than us is really institute contact tracing using cell phones and, and that kind of technology and 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 it can be done with privacy in mind and um you know to at least you know let you know if you got got 
uh, near somebody who was COVID positive, you know, that, that could affect things. So I, uh, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll see more of that come to pass. Well, the principles very much are the same as what the entire country and world for that matter are talking about in terms of being able to open up the economy and people getting back to work safely. In our cases, it's not only keeping the staff and workers safe, but very importantly, keeping our patients safe. And as you both mentioned, providing them an environment that they feel safe to come to. Because again, we don't want to have patients who are not getting care in a timely fashion and that ends up causing them to have you know, a greater burden of, of disease or have any declination in their um, cardiac status. So all of these issues that you all have outlined in the reboot are really very important and would be very helpful to have that in a nice way that the rest of us can refer to and um, see how we can apply to our own situations. So um, any final thoughts from any of you on any of the topics that we've talked about today? I want to thank DJ for leading the way in terms of, you know, these documents coming out uh, uh, in terms of, you know, as we ramp down and he really took the lead uh, for that document and also on rebooting. Yes, I thank you also, DJ, in, in that case, I would like to hear if you have any final thoughts or uh, further okay. words of wisdom for the audience. Uh, no, I mean, I think, uh, thank you both for uh, being, uh, I mean, such amazing uh, part of the Heart of Them team um, in, the, in your respective institutions and what you have contributed to the, uh, to, the, to the scientific world and all the support that I've gotten from you both uh, in, in getting these documents out. Uh, I think I think we've got to keep pushing the envelope. Uh, we have to explore uh, the processes in place. We've got to push our administrators to really provide us access to aggressive testing. I think that is something that that has to happen. And if there is an agenda item on our list when we sit down with our administrative counterparts, that is something that we've got to make happen. I think that will really change the equation in a big way. Uh, and once we identify more of these patients, we can isolate them better and then we can probably slowly try to shut it out uh, over the next few months. So thank you for the opportunity uh, to be here and uh, uh, sharing these discussions with you both. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And then how do we get back to work? And I think that both Mina and DJ have summed this up you know, very nicely. It's really gonna be dependent upon our ability, again, to provide a safe environment through testing, protecting ourselves, the staff, and protecting our patients from the uh, risk of COVID-19 infection. Thank you for joining us today. We invite you all to share this podcast with your colleagues and others who you believe would um, benefit. Please stay safe. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the official policies or positions of the American Heart Association and American Stroke Association. For more information, please visit us at professional.heart.org.